Jesse, last week was so sad. What do you have for me this week? Oh, this week we're going to have a whole bunch of fun. Wife swapping, sex parties, and rampant adultery lead to the murder of an aristocrat in colonial Kenya. I'm Jesse Prey, and I'm Andy Cassette, and this is Love Murder. Okay, so Andy, I have a ripper of a story for you today. It is. It is the rip-roaring. It kind of goes from like the mid-20s all the way through to 1941 in colonial Kenya, and it is a nutsball story. Okay. um, I don't know how to prepare myself for nutballs, but... You know, let's see. Let's see it going. Just hang on to your titties because it's going to be a ride. All right, here we go. So I'm going to set the scene to begin with. By early 1941, the British Empire that has dominated the global stage for the last two centuries is on its last breath. London is getting decimated by the Blitz. America isn't in the war yet, and things are looking pretty darn grim. Meanwhile, in this far-flung corner of East Africa, a weird assembly of nobility, frontiersy entrepreneurs, aristocratic outcasts with some combination of money and title, often one or the other, to be honest, are partying and carrying on as though the outside world doesn't exist. The tale I'm about to tell you is backdropped by an escapist fantasy, wealthy white people clinging to a colonial empire that is in truth already dead. Uh, They just don't know it yet. And that's not the only thing dead. (laughs) In the very early hours of January 24th, 1941, in a Buick, in the ditch of a dusty intersection outside of Nairobi, the freshly shot corpse of Jocelyn Hay, Earl of Errol, the hereditary High Constable of Scotland, is found. Uh But how did he get here? Who did he wrong? And who pulled the trigger? I went really dramatic for this one. I like it. I like it. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> so like keeping me on the edge of my seat. Yeah. This is a case that goes technically unsolved for decades until documents come to light after death. It's just chock full of decadent hedonism, people behaving very badly, and of course, murder. Well, thank God. I know. I would what hope What would so. we be doing Love here? murder, not love hanky-panky, although that's always part of it. <laughs> okay, so the central character in this, our our poor soon-to-be-deceased fellow, is Lord Jocelyn Victor Hay, called Joss by his friends. So he is born into nobility in 1901. In 1911, he attended the coronation of George V and carried his grandfather's coronet. He was, after um, his father and the nobles, the first subject in Scotland. So he's basically like real, real royal <laughs> real real royal real real royal is what what he's up to um but he's kind of a naughty boy and in 1914 when he's only 15 he's kicked out of Eton college for sleeping with a housemaid twice his age ooh yeah so he's he's got a little he's got a naughty little britches over here um So even though he possesses one of Scotland's most distinguished titles, his family is broke. It's the classic story of having all the titles and having to sell off the castles and all of the family jewels and things because money has been mismanaged through the decade. I hate it when you have to sell off all your castles. (laughs) I know. It's such a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
1920, Joss was appointed as an honorary attaché in Berlin under his father, who was a diplomat. So he stayed there for the next two years and returned to London to take the foreign office exams. He passed the exams, but instead of following in his father's footsteps into diplomacy, he began to use his remarkable good looks and title to sleep his way through London society. So this was a very cute guy. Not mad at him. No, we're not mad at him. He kind of looks like um, Taron Egerton from The Kingsman. I know. Yeah, I think he's taller, though, because this guy was really tall. Taron Egerton doesn't look that tall. But he's got that, like, swagger. He was charming and a bit arrogant. And I feel like it's, like, just the sort of guy that every woman falls for in their 20s at some point. The swagger dude. The swag man. He's a bit of a swag man who's a bit of a dick. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he's still in London right now. In the following year, in 1923, he's only 22 at this point, he scandalously seduces and elopes with a married woman who is eight years older than himself. Yep. Her name is Lady Idina Sackville, a real hot ticket, who as of divorcing her second husband to run away with Joss, was now on her third marriage at the ripe old age of 30. Oh, so they get married. So they they eloped. Yeah, they she full-on divorces, runs away with Joss, and elopes with him. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it caused quite the scandal due to the age difference and that it was an affair that ended her previous marriage. And by marrying her, it ultimately cost Joss the chance at a foreign office career. Even after their marriage in September of 1923, it was hinted that they would have been very unwelcome at Ascot, which is a fancy horse race that the royals attend every year, um, which is basically just a metaphor for being like polite society didn't want them around. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they decided to move to Kenya. Uh, Idina had a lot of money still. Like he had none. So she, this was like on her money. She had once lived there for a year with her second husband and she thought it was a place beyond the stifling social expectations and nosy prudences. It was kind of like the wild, wild frontier. It's like being in England is like finishing school and going to Kenya is like going to Burning Man, but with servants. So they initially move into a relatively modest bungalow on the slopes of the Aberdare Mountains. Uh, they dubbed the Slains after a castle that had already been sold by Joss's grandfather. Oh my God. The next year, I know they're living in the past here. The next year in 1925, they moved from Slains into a house in the valley called Clouds, which was a sprawling low thatched mansion with a ton of guest rooms along each of its wings. And they all faced in towards large courtyard. Um, They were super social and they invited a bunch of people from England and they frequently had guests that stayed for like weeks at a time because they where they were in this valley, you had to like drive up and down the mountains to get to their house. And so when it rained, when the rains come in Africa, (laughs) I can't. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to sing it, but I don't want to subject everyone to that. Um, so when it rains, it's really slippery. And so people would literally come and then it would rain and they could not get their cars out. So they'd oh. be like stuck there for like weeks or months. Um, and Idina loved it. She loved having more people around. So Idina loved entertaining and she quickly became this like hedonistic queen of this specific social set in the remote part of the White Highlands. And it is with her that the Happy Valley legends begin. And that's what they called this social set that kind of all partied together and got into trouble together. They called them the Happy Valley crew. 
So Idina was quite the scandalous babe. She was very beautiful and petite, only 5'3", and described as having a perfect, slight, girlish figure. Um, This part weirded Nathaniel out so much. When I told him, she had tiny size 3 feet, and she tried to walk around barefoot and as much as possible to show them off. Size three? Size three. Like how, how tiny are those feet? That's like not an adult size foot. No. And it's so funny to me that I know like in, you know, old Japan, it was considered a beautiful thing too. They did the foot binding. Binding, yeah. Yeah. But I didn't know in 1920s English culture that tiny feet were attractive too. That is so strange. Isn't that so strange? So she tried to show those off as much as possible. An acquaintance said that she could, quote, whistle a chap off a branch and that she didn't pinch other people's men, but if they were left lying around, she'd pick them up. So she had quite a scandalous reputation. Her great-granddaughter later wrote about her. Sex for Idina was an activity for which she not only discovered she had a talent for, but which she clearly found so intensely enjoyable that it rapidly became impossible for her to resist any opportunity for it. Crazy. Yeah. So she was herself irresistible and very naughty. Apparently, even before the scandal with Joss, she had quite the reputation in England for promiscuity. She reportedly had many boyfriends and affairs during her first two marriages. And in her first marriage, she had a lover who commissioned a painting of her when she was only about 19 years old, which was very unheard of that another man would commission a beautiful portrait of a married woman. Um, And recently that sold in a Sotheby's auction for one million pounds. Holy shit. So people in the UK like know about her. Yes. This this, um, case – oh, gosh. You know what? That reminds me. I didn't do my um, sources. So this is a perfect – Segway. Um, this is way more famous in the UK than it here than it is here in the US. Um, I read a book called White Mischief by James Fox. There's also a 1987 film by the same name that I'm going to talk more about later. Obviously, our old friend Wikipedia. A 2014 article from a site called OWA.com, a BBC documentary called Alcohol, Altitude, and Adultery. (laughs) So yes, this was um, a best-selling book in the UK, and it was also a movie. It was made into a movie, so – Yeah, but it's crazy that a lot of people here don't know about it as much, but she's really famous there and as are like a ton of the characters in the story. Okay. Okay. So she was the one who really encouraged the wife swapping and orgies. According to the survivors of her wild parties, she was only happy if all of her guests swapped partners by nightfall and absolutely by the time the weekender invitation was over. One of my absolute favorite stories about her is that she put an onyx bathtub in the center of a parlor and she would greet her guests completely nude in a bubble bath with a glass of champagne. And when the bubbles in both the bath and the glass disappeared, she would rise up and leisurely get dressed all while continuing to converse with her guests. (laughs) She's just like wild. So they had several sex games organized by her and encouraged by Joss, including one where people would blow a feather across a table and they had to go to bed with whoever it landed on. So it's like the most adult version of spin the bottle. Another story included locked doors where there was two copies of the keys and she would essentially put either all the women or all the men in one room and then she would go around and give like who she wanted to sleep with each other, the other set of keys. Hilarious. So 
like you wouldn't know who you're going to sleep with until they like turned the lock and came in your room. Wow. Yeah. So she was doing like key parties way before the 1960s and 70s. So she was really a, kind of like a swinging pioneer. This one sounds so ridiculous, but she also used to have men cut holes in sheets and put their dick through the holes and ladies would pick the member they wanted to experience that it's night. It's like a glory hole, but a little bit more polite. <laughs> <laughs> That is that is a British glory yeah. hole. A proper, proper glory hole. Proper, proper glory hole. Um, I mean, this chick sounds fun. She sounds pretty wild. Yeah. So one of her former guests said, we always called Idina's bed the battleground, and we all used to end up in it at various times of the day or night. So these cats are wild. There's a whole host of insane characters, but I'm just going to try to tell you about the ones who are most germane to the story. Uh, the cl- closest neighbors to Joss and Idina were Count Frederick de Jonzi and his young American heiress wife, Alice. Frederick was a French count, writer, sportsman, and war hero who moved in the literary circle of Proust and wrote the following of the Happy Valley set. In this decor lives a restless crowd of humans, hardly colonists, wanderers perhaps, indefatigable amusement seekers, weary or cast out from many climes, many countries, misfits, Neurasthenics, neurasthenics of great breeding and charm. You can keep that in there that I can't say that. I had to look that word up. (laughs) Who lack the courage to grow old, the stamina to pull up and build anew in this land. So he's a poetic motherfucker. Alice was her own excellent bundle of trouble, but we're going to get more detail on her later. She ends up having a much larger role in the story. Another member of this 20s and 30s Happy Valley crew was Raymond de Trafford, who was a rascal and maybe just a straight-up scoundrel. He came from a grand English family and is described by James Fox in White Mischief as devilishly handsome, quick-witted, original, cultivated, hopelessly indiscreet, a heavy gambler and drinker. A woman who met him in 1931 said he was, quote, something of a handful, very nice, but so bad, and he fights and fucks and gambles and gets disgustingly drunk all of the time. Another person, yeah, he's a bad boy. Another person who hosted him once said he brought back a girl and her mother and had sex with both of them. Ew. I know. That's not even fun. That's just weird. Probably rather cut my own arm off than have sex with my mother or somebody who's having sex with my mother. At the same time. At the same time. Yeah, maybe I just cut both arms off. I don't know how I'd get the one arm I had left off, but (laughs) I would just chew it off like a coyote. (laughs) God. Okay, so I'm sure the least surprising thing that I'm going to tell you is that everyone was doing a shit ton of drugs. Oh my God, really? Uh, So cocaine and morphine were the fashionable drugs of the time, and everyone in this group was doing them pretty openly. It was a party. Apparently, there was an American heiress named Kiki Preston who would literally, like, they'd be doing drugs all night, and if they ran out, she'd, like, send her airplane to go get more cocaine. That is so baller. It's so baller. (laughs) Yes. These people were on, like, a totally different level. Um, so most of the craziest parties, parties happened at Idina's and Joss's, uh, because of the drugs and wife swapping, of course, there was always like insane drama and bad behavior. And it seems like Joss had committed most of this bad behavior. I mean, Raymond was pretty bad, but Joss had a habit of openly betting and pursuing women despite his marriage. And he seemed to specifically target married women. 
he was fond of saying to hell with husbands, and he liked buddying up to the husband while sleeping with their wives behind the husband's back. Ew. Yeah, it was like super manipulative and weird. I think it was a power thing. So are him and Idina not both sleeping with? I mean, it just seems like it wasn't enough for him. Like you'd think with a wife like Idina and them having like sex parties, like that's enough extracurricular activity. Yeah, so he was he, doing more. He was doing more. He was like seeking out like secret relationships. Ooh. Okay, come on. I was like, dude, she lets you do everything and then you're gonna like also have all these like weird secret affairs yeah it seems like he was addicted to it probably yeah I think he had a power control thing too because he always went after women who had husbands like he liked like getting something over on the husband it seemed like um there was one story that they told in the white mischief book about a woman who knew he had had an affair with this other woman and they were all at like um a restaurant in a hotel And the woman he used to have the affair with came in with her husband and her small child. And apparently he like leaned over so everyone at his table could hear him and said, hey, kid, come to daddy. Yeah. And and the woman was like, it was in such poor taste. And he thought it was just the funniest joke. Well, was it his son? I don't know. She didn't think it was, but but nobody knows. Okay, that's trippy. Yeah, so he was kind of a dick. So one such couple that he did this with was Frederick and Alice DeJonzi, as in that he had kind of buddied up to Frederick, but was sleeping with Alice. Wow. Yeah. Alice – and although Idina knew about this one. So Alice became a long-term on-and-off mistress of Joss. She had everything he liked in a woman. She was beautiful and mysterious. She was very thin, dark-haired, high cheekbones, and apparently big, wide, violet-colored eyes. And she was super rich. She was a multimillionaire heiress, only child, two fortunes on both her mother and father's side. Crazy. And yeah. So she's wealthy, kind of crazy. Um, married. So it's kind of everything he could wish for in one package. Yeah. So her story is kind of tragic. Um, her mother had died when she was only five. And apparently it's very sketchy, like what her relationship with her father was like after that. He seemed to like start dressing her up as like a grown woman when she was like only in her preteens and like taking her out to nightclubs and like letting her drink and do drugs. And he like kind of introduced her more as like a girlfriend than a daughter. Ew. Yeah. So there's speculation that she was abused. Um, She had been like taken out of her father's care at at one point because of her aunts and uncles suspecting that something untoward was going on. Whoa. This vulnerability made her even more appealing to people. She was charming, often the center of attention. She could play the ukulele. She had lion cub pets. Um, She loved animals. There was just like something very open and tender and sweet about her. She's like the original, like, sweet emo girl. Okay, I thought you were going to say she was the original Joe Exotic, but. (laughs) That too. (gasps) Josephine Exotic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that actually goes into the next thing because this is kind of like Joe Exotic. It's believed that there was something of a polyamorous relationship between Joss, Idina, and Alice. Oh, really? Yeah, so they kind of had like a three-way thing that Frederick didn't really know about because Idina and Alice were really good friends. So Alice could just be like, I'm going to stay over at Idina's. All of these places were super spread out. Like they were just all over Kenya, like around Nairobi. But like you would have to travel like 
hours and hours, if not days, to get to each other's ranches. So like a lot of time you would go to a place for like a whole weekend or a week or something because it took so long to get there. Yeah. Okay. So it seems like Frederick didn't really know about the situation. Um, And it also seems like Idina actually introduced the idea of the affair when she was pregnant. She was like, I know that he's going to fuck around on me and I want it to be with my best friend, which is so weird. So weird. But I mean, if you're already kind of like in that open relationship, it's like less weird, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's also like I was talking to Nathaniel about this and he was like, that's like the parents who let their kids drink at home. They're like, at least they're drinking where I know they're drinking. (laughs) Give me your keys. Give me your keys. You're not going anywhere. You can drink when you're 15, though. <laughs> Alice, during these, like, she's, like, on and off, basically, their mistress. Um, but then she falls in love with Raymond de Trefford. That was the naughty yeah. boy yeah. I told you about earlier. Uh, so apparently Raymond and Alice are getting quite flagrant. So unlike what was going on with, like, Alice and Joss and Idina that was really under the radar, they're just, like, going out. They're getting in front of people. They're, like, making out. They're traveling together. They're just, like, rubbing it in Frederick's face. And how old do you think they are at this time? They're all, like, probably late 20s. Okay. So still at this pretty point, young. early 30s. Yeah. So I think that they're all pushing 30-ish at this point. They're both married to other people, too. Raymond's married. Alice is obviously married. Um, and Alice falls just madly for him. So even though Frederick takes Alice back to Paris to repair the marriage, she, like, immediately goes back to Kenya, Kenya to be with Raymond. And at that point, they form a plan to leave their spouses. So Raymond says he's going to leave his wife. Um, She says she's going to leave Frederick. Uh, Then she goes back to Paris to request a divorce from Frederick. In March of 1927, Raymond travels to Paris to tell Alice that his parents would cut him off financially if he divorced and that he was going to stay with his wife. So she's fucking devastated. And a lot of people in their set said that he probably could have just sent her a letter explaining it, but he was just kind of a drama king. And he went there and kind of like rubbed it in her face that he wasn't going to be with her. Yeah. But could she also not have supported him? Like, it seems like he's kind of just copping out. Yeah. I mean, I think she still had independent money from her family. So even if she got divorced from Frederick, it wasn't like she was going to be destitute. Yeah. Um, But I think he definitely relied on his parents a lot. And I think he was worried about being not only just cut off financially, but cut off from the lineage and the whole family because it was like a very moneyed old school English family. Yeah. So I think there was like a lot of ways he was worried about being cut off. And also, I don't know how much he actually loved Alice, you know? So basically at this point, she's devastated and she's like, okay, I understand. Let me just like walk you to the train. So he's getting on a train to go back to England and she is walking with him and she puts him in his carriage, like a first class carriage. On the channel? And then uh, on the channel. (laughs) Was it even around in the 20s? I don't know. I don't know either. So anyways, she's like saying, goodbye to him and she like leans forward and she kisses him and then she pulls out a gun and shoots him in the chest and then turns the gun on herself and shoots herself in the stomach. In the stomach? In the stomach. And this is at the Gare du Nord. So yeah, so she injures both of them, but they both live, which is crazy. Oh my God. I know. I don't know how possibly, like it must be a different type of gun that was not as powerful. Like today you'd be dead. Wow. That's, there's just no way. 
Yeah, so she's charged with attempted murder, but the case receives an insane amount of publicity. It's in Paris, and she ends up getting released on probation because of the public's sympathy. Like, this is the most French thing I've ever heard about. They're like, oh, it's a crime of passion. It's a crime for love. Like, basically, she just went to court and was like, I did it because I loved him. I gave up my kids. I gave up my husband. I gave up everything for him. And then he told me he was leaving me. And like, the whole French jury and judge were just like, oh, girl, we feel you. So basically she gets off with like the cheapest fine ever. It's only a hundred francs. Oh my God. I know. It's just the most ridiculous thing. So after this, she goes back to Kenya where she resumes her affair with Joss until the government house of Kenya labels her an undesirable alien and asks her to get the fuck out of Kenya. Oh my God. she, She has to leave and go back to France at that point. But the absolute craziest part of the story is that five years after she shoots him, Raymond marries her. What? Yeah, Raymond marries Alice five years after the shooting. How? I I have no idea, but I'm going to get back into them in a little bit because right now I'm moving back on to Joss. So we're going back over to Joss and Idina. It's 1928 now, and Joss's father has died, and he has officially become the Earl of Errol. His marriage to Idina is in tatters. He basically has been committing what she calls uh, financial infidelity. So, like, he can, like, bang any girl he wants, but he has been, like, spending all of her money, running up debts in her name, like, doing really backhanded weird money stuff. With, like, other women? Well, no, just, like, with her. He's, like, well, he might be spending it on other women, but he's, like – gambling and running up debts in her name at different like hotels and restaurants and things like that. And she's like just finding out what he's doing under her name and her financials. So she's already like pissed at him and it doesn't help that he starts a very, very serious affair with yet another older, rich, married lady, which I kind of think he saw the writing was on the wall with Idina. Like she was getting frustrated with him. He had basically spent shit ton of her money already and so he's like okay who can i like leech on to next so he goes for this woman named molly ramsey hill she's a petite slender auburn haired woman who's married to a guy named major cyril ramsey hill who's a rancher who had built himself a gigantic whitewashed castle in the moroccan style on the edge of lake navasha that was known colloquially as the gin palace so molly like falls for Joss, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, there was a rumor that her husband, upon learning about the affair, horsewhipped Joss in front of a Nairobi hotel, but a former Somali servant told James Fox the real story. Molly and Joss packed up Cyril's two Buicks and set off for a safari. And when Major Cyril came home and found that his wife and cars were missing, he hunted them down and found them at the safari camp. And apparently he like chased Joss all around the camp with a rhino whip trying to take him down. Oh my God. And when Joss like finally eluded him, he took off in one of the Buicks, went home and began divorce proceedings. So in the divorce, Cyril cited Joss as the intervening party, and he won 3,000 pounds in damages to pay off debts that the couple had run up in his name. Wow. Yeah, so they were getting up to some nonsense in his name while they were having this affair. But Molly got to keep the gin palace. Um, Idina also divorced Joss that year, and she cited infidelity and named Molly as the extra person. With their former spouses behind them, Molly and Joss were married in 1930, and they move into the gin palace. So it's unknown if Joss ever really had any real passion for Molly or if it was merely a passion for her money. 
as Molly's estate produced an income of 8,000 pounds a year, which is 526,355 pounds a year in today's money. Wow. So that's, yeah, over a half million, which goes real far in Kenya. And just from in, the estate. Yeah, just from her estate. They seemed relatively happy for a short while, uh, but eventually playing polo and being a kept man bored Joss, and he became interested in politics, as bored rich people are wont to do. (laughs) (laughs) In 1934, Joss became a member of the British Union of Fascists. Oh. So, yeah, so this guy is making great decisions. Casual. So to Joss, British fascism meant super loyalty to the crown, no dictatorship, complete religious and social freedom, an insulated empire to trade with, quote, dirty foreigners, higher wages, and lower cost of living. However, when Mussolini invaded Abyssinia the next year, Joss dropped his membership and relationship with the fascists and was elected at 34 to the presidency of the Convention of Associations, which was kind of like the settlers' parliament. So it was for like the white settlers in the area had their own like little form of government. So he basically dropped any association with the fascists and he ran with a different political affiliation that was like kind of more centrist. Um, And he won. So during this time that he's following his political aspirations, he is completely ignoring Molly. Um, He had, according to a friend, gobbled up all of her money and had walked out on her all of the time. And she was going through a really, really hard time because they had had multiple miscarriages and all she really wanted was to have a baby. Um, And so after the multiple miscarriages, she turned to excessive drinking and morphine use. And it got back in a hell. No, that's definitely not going to help you have a baby. No. <laughs> um, and it's not going to help you with your depression either. And so she got like real, real addicted, real bad. And the servants tried to intervene and they tried to get help from Joss to like, like they were literally like hiding her booze and stuff like that and being like begging Joss to like intervene and do something because she was killing herself. And he said, give the woman as much as she wants to drink. If she wants to die, let her have it. If she wants to drink, let her have one. And repeatedly told them and others who were concerned, I don't care if she dies. Oh my God. Yeah. So he's kind of a dick bag. I mean, more than kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So the doctor in Kenya who treated her said that on his visits to the house, the house smelled of vomit and champagne and Molly's body. Yeah. That's like the worst. You can just evoke that too, vomit and champagne. You can smell that. Just smell it. Oh. And her body was covered with heroin abscesses like everywhere. Ew. Yeah. She was shooting the morphine up. Not cute. Not a good look. So eventually the poor dear did die. And the only thing her husband seemed to care about is that the trustees to her estate stopped the flow of money. So they were like, this guy basically killed her and he's not getting another cent. So the only thing that was left for Joss was the gin palace. Um, but he didn't really have the money or the like staff to keep it open because it was a huge place. So he temporary clo- temporarily closed it down and moved into a bungalow in Mataiga near the club they all frequented. Um, Mutaiga is a super affluent neighborhood in Nairobi. Okay. Um, He was broke, living on credit, and the small annual allowance that his father had left him, which was only 300 pounds a year. So that's like roughly like 19,000 pounds in today's money. So he went from like a half million to just 19,000. Crazy. That's such such an adjustment. 
Yeah, so he's going to have to find another richer woman soon, probably. <laughs> Is he still good looking now at like 35? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. He's super cute still. Okay. Um, by 1940, Joss had become a military secretary for the colony. He had joined the Kenya Regiment with the rank of captain, and he was the head of the manpower board. So he's getting along financially because he's now getting paid by the military as well. Um, and he's he's kind of a well-respected man in his station. So he was also having a love affair with a woman named Nancy Wirewater, another married woman. And they met mostly at lunch in the billiard room of the Mutaiga Club. And they were once caught in flagrante on the top of a pool table by the owner of the club. Wow. Yeah, they're getting naughty. So our old friend Alice Dejanzi is finally allowed to return to Kenya. Her marriage to Raymond only lasted three months before they were separated. Not surprisingly, they fought incessantly, and they came to an end when Raymond hurled a cocktail in her face at a Paris cafe, and she was wearing like one of those really cute hats with a little veil, and the maraschino cherry got stuck in her veil, and apparently he was just like laughing hysterically <laughs> at her, and she was just disgusted with him, and that was it. She like got up and walked away, and they never saw each other again. I mean, she shot him. She I, shot I can't him. imagine that that marriage would last long. No, that must have been some crazy ass sex though, huh? It had to have been. <laughs> it had to be fireworks. I mean, I don't know what could compel me to ever get back together with somebody who shot me. Yeah, and, and I'm sure like they got off on that thrill for a minute. But then like even after a couple months, I feel like you'd be like, oh yeah, she shot me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so they never see each other again. In 1939, Raymond is jailed for three years for manslaughter for killing a pedestrian while driving drunk. What a tool. He is such a prince, this guy. Um, he was next in court in 1946, declaring bankruptcy, and he died fairly shortly after that. So goodbye, Raymond. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Ta-ta. <laughs> Um, so in good, good riddance, Raymond, in 1940, Lord Jock Delves Broughton, a new character to the scene, moves to Kenya with his much younger second wife, Diana. So they moved there because he had spent many times there hunting safaris with his first wife and he had purchased a coffee plantation there in 1923. So he's no stranger to this part of Kenya. So this guy... Uh, Jock is a little older. Um, I think he is 50 when our story begins. He's not popular in his social class. He's considered a coward for dropping out of the military during World War I, citing sunstroke. So he's kind of like the bone spurs of World War I. Okay. And also being described as cynical, sour, arrogant, dishonest, charmless, vicious, cold, and cruel in more ways than one. Um, he dragged his left foot when he walked and had arthritis in his right hand from a car accident in 1915. He had met Diana in 1935 when she was 22 and he was already 50. And this meeting, yeah, they have quite the age difference. Um, it kind of proved fortuitous, though, this meeting for both parties. Jock was obviously well into a midlife crisis. He was feeling ignored by his longtime wife, Vera. She, they'd been married for, I think, almost 25 years at this point, and she had had an affair with another lord um, who was happily married, or not that happily if he's having an affair, yeah. but was like, didn't want to leave his wife in any regard. 
Um, and Diana was nursing her wounds from a failed first marriage to a dashing musician who had cheated on her. Okay. So I think that kind of what was going on was that she was like, okay, this younger, sexy musician guy totally, you know, made me look like a fool. Maybe if I go for an older guy with some semblance of security who has money, you know? Yeah, it seems like they were both kind of seeking attention. Exactly. Yeah. This was like, it felt like a perfect fit for what they needed at the time. Diana was a fascinating and beautiful society girl who could ride horses, shoot guns, and even pilot a plane. She was described by journalist Cyril Connolly as, quote, one of those creamy ash blondes of the period with a passion for clothes and jewels, both worn to perfection and for enjoying herself and bringing out enjoyment in others. Her large, pale eyes would be called cold by those on whom they had not smiled, her mouth hard by those who had not kissed it. Sounds like he has a little crush. Mm-hmm. Um, she looks like kind of Grace Kelly-ish and, and because she's dressed in that style too, but she has more severe, intense features. Um, and she has eyes a lot like Kate Walsh, who is the actress who plays Addison Montgomery on Grace Anatomy. If got you can it, picture that. Got it, got it. Okay. So yes, like I said, this bitter experience of the adulterous young playboy husband led Diana to this wealthy, stable older man and Broughton could not believe his luck to have snagged such a beautiful, vibrant young woman. So from 1935 to 1939, um, he is still married to Vera, though he's dating Diana. And uh, like I said, Vera's having her own affair with a man named Lord Moyne. In 19- Lord Moyne, in 1938, Jock and Vera made their last public appearance together at their daughter's wedding. And in 1939, after Lord Moyne's wife dies, Vera begins divorce proceedings so she can officially marry her lover. Okay. So Jock's actually really surprised and kind of upset about this. Even though they both have their side pieces, he kind of assumed that they were going to leave it like that and stay married together. Okay. So – his ego is damaged and he wants to like move on quickly in a weird vengeful way. Um, And he responds by immediately proposing marriage to Diana and making plans to immigrate to Kenya. Okay. So I don't know if he like really thought it through. And I don't know, like during this period that they're dating, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like they're exclusive. Like obviously he has a wife. It seems like Diana has been dating other people too. Okay. So when he like immediately is like, let's get married and let's move <clears throat> to Kenya. I think she was kind of like, I guess so. <laughs> it doesn't seem like she had a ton of enthusiasm for this proposal. So there's a couple reasons why he and they would want to move to Kenya. Number one is money troubles. He had been selling off acreage of his ancestral properties, and rumors abounded that he had made some catastrophic mistakes in his investments. Around this time, he also reported two robberies and collected insurance on both. The summer before, he claimed that the Broughton pearls that were insured for 17,000 pounds had been stolen from the glove compartment of Diana's car while they were in the south of France. And the previous October, three family portraits had been cut from their frames while Broughton was in London. Both robberies and payouts had a whiff of insurance fraud and spoke to his desperation to get his hands on some money so he could continue to sell off acres and live cheaply in Kenya with Diana. And then there's a very obvious number two, which is it's 1940 in England. It was getting the like bomb to hell right now. And it was a very difficult place to live, obviously, at this point. 
So I think Diana was eager to get out of England as well, not just because of the war, but her father had just died. She had no real relationship with her mother, and most of her friends had disappeared into marriage or the war effort. And she kind of decided she wasn't exactly a war effort type of girl. (laughs) She's more of a like a jewels and horses and take me out to dinner type of girl. So they were married a few months after Jock's divorce was finalized in a South African registrar's office on November 5th, 1940. They did have one most interesting prenuptial understanding. And I don't know if this was ever contractually written down, but they both acknowledge this agreement. And that was that if Diana fell in love with a man her own age and wanted to leave Jock, he was not to stand in her way and was even to pay her 5,000 pounds a year for seven years, which is 281,000 pounds. Whoa. So that seems very overly generous to me that he would be like, you can totally leave me for another guy and I'll even keep paying you, you know, a quarter, more than a quarter million pounds for seven years. Is it a quarter million pounds every year? Every year for seven years. That is a healthy amount of money. Yep. So the newlywed couple arrives in Kenya and they're greeted by Hugh Dickinson, who is a lieutenant in the Royal Corps and a close friend of Diana's, who, despite being married, had arranged a transfer to Kenya to be closer to her. So there's a rumor that there's some sort of relationship between Hugh and Diana, but the two of them always maintain that they're just best friends. They're like brother and sister. So who okay. really knows what's going on with them? Hugh really um, knows. Hugh really knows. Also, Hugh is played by a young Hugh Grant in the movie. Really? Yeah. He's he's very cute, um, but he has a very bad unibrow. Okay. <laughs> but he's adorable Easy still. solution so for that. By, Easy solution. Yeah. Just a little plucking, buddy. little plucking. Um, so, Yes. So on the same boat that they came over on was a sadistic asshole named John Carberry, who was a Nazi sympathizer, and his first wife had divorced him under cruelty. And his daughter said that his second wife had committed suicide due to his bullying and cruelty towards her. Whoa. So he's a dick. He's a monster. Um, He's a monster. Yeah, the other guys were dicks. This guy's a monster. Um, His third wife, June Carberry, was waiting for him at arrival, and she met Diana and Jock, and she became best friends with Diana, like, right away. Um, She and John's daughter, Juanita, are going to have larger parts in the story later. After befriending the Carberries, Jock brought Diana on a tour to meet all of his old friends in Kenya, including Gladys Delamere, the first woman mayor of Nairobi, and Jack Soames, a dirty old man who drilled holes in his guest room so he could peep at his guests as they undressed. Whoa. Yeah. Like, actually, is there a single good guy in this whole story? (laughs) This is men behaving very poorly. (laughs) Um, so they stayed with Soames at his ranch for a couple weeks. I bet he got an eyeful of Diana and shot targets with him. And Diana proved to be a much more adept shot than Jock. So they moved into a room at the Mutaiga Club and Jock left to go tour a farm he was interested in buying. So she's left alone at the club. And on November 30th, 1940, so less than a month after she married Jock, Diana meets Joss for the first time at the Caledonia Ball at the club. She recalled later that she came down the stairs and saw three men sitting on a sofa laughing when their eyes met. And she said, I had the extraordinary feeling, if you can understand it, that I was suddenly the most important thing in his life. 
So they had like this like sparks, like love at first sight thing. And she said that at the time he asked her if she was free for dinner and she was like desperately like asking other people around them to come like, oh yeah, but can you join us? Can you join us? Because she said that she knew that like if they dined alone together, that she was going to get like caught up in his spell. Yeah. Like immediately. I know that feeling. (laughs) You married that feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they did end up dining alone and then they ended up dancing all night together. And while they were dancing, he said, well, who's going to tell your husband, you or I? So it was like the first night together, he was already like, who's going to like tell your husband that you're leaving him? But she's not wealthy on her own, right? No, she's not. Yeah. So this is a departure from his usual interest. Yeah. Also, she's younger than him. Yeah. Yeah. So she's he's at this point, I think like 39 and I think she's 27. Okay. So she's younger than him. And so this is a v- huge departure from his usual type. They just really clicked. And she had kind of – after the young musician she married, she had kind of decided she was always going to marry for money after that too, and he doesn't have any money. No. So this is this is just raw love and sex appeal. And he's still like 10 years younger than um, Jacques. Oh, yeah. yeah. Jacques, is, um, Jacques is 55 at oh, this point. Okay, so like 15 years younger. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, he's he's a lot younger and he's really handsome and he's in great shape because he's in the military and he exercises all the time. And he just was like everyone was still kind of into this guy too. Okay. Um, so they were instantly in love for the first time in Diana's life. So Jock comes back two days later and typical Joss fashion, he befriends Jock Broughton and the trio become inseparable. So now they're like hanging out together all the time, which is so weird. But Jock doesn't know. Jock has no idea. Okay. So on December 5th, the Broughtons move from the club to their new house in Karen, an affluent Nairobi suburb named after the Baroness Karen Blixen. And the lovers are reunited on December 22nd at a joint birthday party at the Mutaiga Club for Diana and Gladys. There was dancing from dusk till dawn, and apparently Joss and Diana were attached at the hip, like even in front of her husband. They were described as dancing as if they were glued together. And this was particularly interesting because not only was Jock there, but many of Joss's former paramours were at this party, including Alice and Idina. And Gladys herself had apparently had a fling with Joss at some point. Oh, my God. So there's a lot of Eskimo sisters and brothers happening here. Um, a lot of Eskimo siblings in the, the desert of Kenya. I was going to say, is it also Eskimo brothers or is it just Eskimo sisters? I think it's both. Okay. I, Eskimo I siblings. Es- <laughs> so by Christmas, the couple was crystallized. They were already like really into each other. And on January 3rd, the deception of Jock really began. Diana and Joss went to June Carberry's house at Nyeri on the coast. On Monday, January 6th, they returned to Nairobi, and at this point, tongues were wagging. One of their acquaintances commented that anyone who saw them at that time would have known they were in love. On the same day that Joss and Diana returned, Jock received an anonymous note in his club mail slot. It read, You seemed like a cat on hot bricks at the club last night. What about the eternal triangle? What are you going to do about it? So it's a very vague note that suggests, I think, through the eternal triangle that there's some sort of love triangle going on. Okay. 
So he didn't really understand what was going on or what this note meant. So he showed the note to Diana and she just like laughed it off and was like, oh, you should laugh it off too. Although she must have known what it was implying. Of course. Um, So he tries to laugh it off as well. But in the back of his mind, he's like starting to dawn on him that something's going on. So he tried to take Diana on a vacation to Ceylon, which is modern-day Sri Lanka, but she had begged off saying that she needed to finish furnishing their Karen house when really she wanted to stay close to Joss and obviously have an empty house that he can come to and hang out with her. Um, This all came to a head at a dinner party thrown by the Broughtons on January 12th. It was already a tense dinner due to a fight that had erupted between Gladys and another guest about the war effort, and then like Gladys was kind of drunk. And she cornered Joss and and was asking him about Diana. And he told her that he was determined to marry her. He had never been so happy and he would do anything for Diana. He asked Gladys's advice as to what to do. And she advised him that they should be honest with Jock, make a clean break of it. And just like come clean and say like, we're in love. We want to get married if that's how he really feels. Yeah. And and Joss said that he would think about it, but he did trust her judgment. So he he's like, that's probably a good idea. And I just need to like figure it out and talk to Diana. So then Gladys, who's a little bit of a busybody, <laughs> approached Diana. <laughs> I feel and like said, that's so typical for a Gladys. It's so typical oh, you for know a Gladys. Gladys. I think she... <laughs> Although, you know what? I say that, but I feel like if I was drunk, I would totally do this to people too. I'd be like, because she walks <laughs> over to Diana and she's like, do you know that Joss is very much in love with you? And oh, yeah, Diana that definitely replied, sounds very familiar to things you've done. <laughs> Gladys is here. Well, that's when I'll know that I'm overstepping my boundaries when you call me Gladys. (laughs) Um, So Gladys approaches Diana and says, do you know that Joss is very much in love with you? Diana replies, yes. And Gladys says, well, what are you going to do about it? Which may sound familiar to you. It's from the note. And it's something that Gladys apparently says all the time about everything. Well, what are you going to do about it? So there's a suggestion here that Gladys was the one writing the anonymous notes. Yeah. Seems like her. So through Yeah, it seems like her meddling Gladys over here. Throughout the ladies' conversation, Diana revealed that they planned on being married, but she didn't want to hurt Jock. Gladys told Diana that she adored Joss and wanted to see him happy as he hadn't had happy marriages the first two times. Whose fault was that, Joss? Yeah, <laughs> Gladys is like, poor Joss. He's been so unhappy in marriage. Really playing that victim card. Yeah. <laughs> um, Gladys said that Jock was an old man and has had his life. Quote, take your happiness where you can. There's a war on. And ultimately, she gives Diana the same advice she gave Joss, which is to come clean to Jock. So Diana had been concerned about going forward with legitimizing their affair, but she's strengthened by Gladys's seeming approval. I think she was like really worried that they're going to be social outcasts. They would be so broke. And by having the mayor of Nairobi and like the queen of the social scene be like, oh, it's fine. Just leave Jock and like be with Joss. I think it probably gave her some peace of mind. And like liquid courage. Exactly. And so at this point, the, the women were still upstairs and they were the only women at the, the party, the dinner party. So Jock interrupted the women and ushered them downstairs. And he was saying that like the men wanted to dance and there was like no one to dance because they'd been upstairs for a half hour. And um, Joss asked Diana to dance. So the two of them are busy and Gladys is standing there with Jock. And of course, she turns around and says, do you know that Joss is wildly in love with Diana? Way to get into it, Gladys. Whoa. So she just straight up says this to the husband. 
Whoa. So, I know. Not cool, Gladys. Party foul. Party foul. Jock later recounted, it gave me a great deal of food for thought, and I became rather distraught, and I did neglect my duties as a host in not being as attentive to Lady Delamere as I should have been. It confirmed my worst suspicions, and I was very absent-minded afterwards, which feels like very British to be like, I just found out my wife's cheating on me, and I'm so sorry I was a terrible host. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) I was rather absent-minded afterwards. So in a rather bizarre move, but seemingly typical of both of men's personalities, Jock invited Joss to stay the night after this, and Joss accepted even going riding with Jock the next morning. So after Joss finally leaves, Jock confronts Diana um, later that morning, and he did this by suggesting she was seeing entirely too much of Joss eyebrow raised so he didn't do it directly like hey i know you're banging him stop it he was just like don't you think you're seeing entirely too much of that guy and she was like no (laughs) basically so her her response was just to like leave nairobi she was like yeah i don't want to have this conversation with you so she left nairobi by train that very afternoon to go visit june carberry and melindy and she was later joined by joss There, they told June and Hugh Dickinson that they were in love, and Hugh took one of the very few photos of the two of them together on the Khalifi Ferry, which I will also add to the Instagram. So, meanwhile, Jock Lord Broughton was licking his wounds at creepy old Jack Soames's ranch. So, he's getting, like, shit-faced day and night. He does not know how to deal with the situation, and they have been married for less than two months when this is happening. Yikes. So... Yeah, shit went crazy real fast. So Soames' advice was for Jock to confront Joss and ask him if he truly loved Diana. And if he did not, like if it was just a sexual fling, he should tell him to like buzz off and leave his wife alone. But he says if he does love him, you know, he is much more of Diana's age. Jock should cut his losses and just divorce her and return to England. Which seems like pretty solid advice, I think. (sighs) Still very polite. I mean, could you imagine this happening here? Like, <laughs> no, like oh my God. On, on any of the reality television shows that we watch, like, if somebody's like, well, you won, old chap. Here you go. Here's my wife. <laughs> You're in love with her more than I am. <laughs> no, no, that's not how Americans roll. You know how to tickle like- her fancy. <laughs> Yeah, there's no way. There'd be some Jerry Springer-ass action sure. going on if it was in the States. We'd we'd actually be – this is like why Americans handle things a lot different, differently. Remember that Alice DeJanzi was an American and she shot that motherfucker. <laughs> we are not polite. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Joss and Diana return from Nairobi and they're like clandestinely holed up at Joss's house. So she doesn't even tell her husband she's back. She's just like hiding in Joss's house and he doesn't know they're home. Uh, so they they call Gladys and they tell her at that time that they're taking her advice and that they're going to come clean to Jock and they're going to be together. Okay. That same day, Lord Broughton received his second anonymous note at the Mutaiga Club and it read... Do you know your wife and Lord Errol have been staying alone at the Carberry's house in Nairi together? Gotta be Gladys. Come on. Gotta be. Gotta be. Gabby, this time, Gladys. Gabby Gladys over here. 
Um, this time he destroyed the note and he did not show it to Diana. So he is now fully confirmed that this is happening. On the 18th, the four of them, including June, so we're talking about Jock, Joss, Diana, and June, sit down for a Mutaiga club lunch, which Broughton considered a truce. Diana, however, seems like a nervous wreck, and she tells Jock that she wants to speak with him later. So they return to Karen, and she tells him that she's in love with Errol. But Jock dismisses this, and he counters with a trip to Ceylon with him for three months to see if the affair was serious. So he basically says, okay, I get that you feel that way, but, you know, you're just having an infatuation, and you should come away with me for three months, and if you still love him when we return, then we can talk about this again, but I think you'll get over it. Okay. And she's like, no, and I'm not going to Ceylon. (laughs) I know. It's just – I mean, it feels like – that's kind of a reasonable request. You've been married. You're married to somebody. You made a commitment that you should at least try to see if you can put it back together. But she's just like, nope, nope, I know, nope. But then again, it's only been two months. So could you imagine dating someone for two months and then, you know, and then you fall in love with someone else? Of course, you'd be like, I'm out. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's only been, it's been like two and a half months at this point. So this escalated very quickly. Um, so after confronting Diana, Jock calls and demands an audience with Joss. The conversation as it was recorded later in court went as follows. Jock, Diana tells me she's in love with you. Errol, well, she's never told me that, but I'm frightfully in love with her. Broughton tells Joss that he should step aside and encourage Diana to go to Ceylon with him. He says that they were very, very happy before Joss got involved and that he should also leave Kenya. So Joss is like, no, um, <laughs> um, no, there is nowhere else I can go. There's a war on. He has a job and as politely and respectfully as possible, basically tells him to fuck off. Like, I'm not going anywhere and I'm not leaving your wife alone. So Diana stays with Lord Errol, which is Joss, and June, um, basically the entire month of January. She only sleeps at her own house like three nights. I'm surprised she even went yeah. home three nights. I know. <laughs> so there's like one night that the next day the Broughtons were supposed to be throwing a pool party. So she kind of has to go home yeah. because she's supposed to be like throwing a day pool party the next day. And apparently like Diana, she gets June to come with her and like sleep in her room. And apparently um, the Broughtons had separate bedrooms like their whole marriage, which was only a few months. But they never slept in the same room. Come on. Yeah. Of course like, she's in you love with each other yeah something's off like if you're sleeping in separate bedrooms when you're newlyweds uh yeah there's something up so so basically she brought june home at like 3 30 in the morning and he was like waiting up for them and diana had these brand new pearls on and he was like where are those from and she's like joss gave them to me like she is just like flaunting it does not care at this point And so the next day, guests arrive for the pool party, and witnesses recall Jock drunk and extremely ill-tempered. After the pool party, June says she's leaving for Nairi, and Diana says she's going to go with her. Yeah, I wouldn't say But they actually (laughs) – No, no. He's, like, getting really drunk, ill-tempered, like, mean. Yeah, no. And – She's, like, not going home without a friend, and she's not going to stay there. Uh, So she leaves, but they actually go to Mutaiga to see Joss instead of, like, going where they say they're going to go. So June is, like, very much helping this affair. Um, So Jock is becoming increasingly unhinged, and witnesses overheard him giving Joss an ultimatum to stay away from Diana over the phone. 
While Diana is away, he files a police report saying that two revolvers, a silver cigarette case, and a small amount of money have been stolen from him. Yes. This is kind of random, but it it definitely, like, the first thing I thought when I read that is that he's setting up something for these stolen guns. Yeah. Yeah. So on the 21st of January, both Broughton and Errol go to their lawyers about the divorce. So basically, Joss is going to his attorneys about, like, what he has to do to get Diana out of this marriage. Okay. And Broughton is going to see how he can, like, protect his assets in the event of a divorce. Okay. Um, and Jock rebooks the canceled trip to Ceylon that Diana has turned down, and he writes a letter to Jack Soames. I have taken your advice. I put the position to Errol and Diana. They say they are in love with each other and mean to get married. It is a hopeless position, and I'm going to cut my losses. I think I'll go to Ceylon. There's nothing for me to live for in Kenya anymore. So it seems like he's accepting it. Which is, it's sad for him, for sure. Meanwhile, a third anonymous letter appears in Jock's Mutaigo mail slot, which is like, Gladys, this is just overkill now. He knows what's going on. And it says, there's no fool like an old fool. What are you going to do about it? Now it's just mean. Age shaming him. (laughs) I know. God, way to kick a man when he's down. (laughs) Um, so on January 23rd, Broughton arranges for a lunch at the club with June, Joss, and Diana once again. Joss later tells his friend that Jock had done a complete about face. While he had been previously difficult and obviously frustrated about their affair, he has now conceded Diana to Joss cheerfully. Joss says Jock could not have been nicer. He has agreed to go away. As a matter of fact, he has been so nice. He has agreed to go away. Bye. Um, He's agreed to go away. As a matter of fact, he has been so nice, it smells bad. Yeah, yeah. Which it should. It stinks to high heaven. Yeah. So after the lunch, Broughton takes Diana out to the veranda, and he tells her that she has nothing to worry about. He's prepared to go to Ceylon by himself, um, that she can keep the Karen house, and after Ceylon, he would actually go straight back to England. Diana was relieved and she was apologetic. You know, they both discussed their prenuptial agreement. And Diana says she's only sorry it happened so soon after their marriage. So she's just totally relieved. And she's like, look, this is not what I I planned for. I know it's not what you planned for. I'm really, really sorry that it happened so fast, but I can't help it, you know? So he seems like he's really handling this exceptionally well, and he even suggests Broughton suggests a celebratory dinner at the club that night with the same foursome. And while they're having dinner that evening, to everyone's astonishment, he orders several bottles of champagne and he proposes a toast to Diana and Joss. He says, I wish them every happiness and may their union be blessed with an heir. What? So weird. There's It's so weird. Yeah. Something weird going on. Something's afoot. That's just not normal. I don't care how polite y'all are. That's not normal. (laughs) (laughs) All y'all, I don't know. I don't think we have any UK listeners, but if you do, y'all are polite, but you're not this polite. Come on. (laughs) You can tell me if I'm wrong. (laughs) Trippy. Also, I feel like it would just be so weird to be Joss and Diana, like sitting there toasting to your future marriage with your ex-husband. Ex- <laughs> right there. Who actually yeah. they're not divorced yet. 
It's current husband. Yeah, current husband. So weird. Also, you're still newlyweds with your current husband. It's less than three months. Crazy. It's crazy, crazy town. He later says that he really, truly meant it and that he had to accept it and graciously move on. And it was for a couple reasons. He had to honor his agreement with Diana, but also he had to do like the British stiff upper lip thing and mitigate the humiliation of the situation. So like it was humiliating for him. So it would be better if he just seemed to accept it and move on graciously rather than show face, like throwing a fit. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That is um, definitely so the, a proper thing to do. Yes, it is. Don't make a scene, darling. <laughs> Jacques. Uh, you guys can all like make fun of our terrible yeah, accents. So bad. But we're going to keep doing <laughs> yeah. them. So it's not going to stop us. Uh, so. The dinner ended at 10.15 p.m. and Diana Joss were like, great, thanks for the dinner, bye. And they just like went and danced. Well, June stayed with Jock, who was drinking extremely heavily at this point. And around 11.30, June reported that Jock was very drunk, cross, and peevish. He was loudly complaining about Diana, how poorly she had treated him in less than three months of marriage, and how there was no way in hell she was getting the Karen house or their previously agreed upon 5,000 pounds a year. So to her face, he was like, yes, I'm totally going to give you the money, like Godspeed, enjoy. And now he's wasted and he's like, F that B. She's not getting anything from me. And what does he think that June's not going to tell her? Of course. June's her best friend. Come on. Come on. So come on. So Jock and June stayed out together until 1.30 a.m. drinking at the club, arriving back and Karen together, um, driven by June's chauffeur, around 2 a.m. So June says that she then helped Broughton up the stairs to his room because he was very drunk, but also remember he has like a limp too. So she was like helping the old boy up to his room. And then she'd requested quinine from the housekeeper to fend off a malaria attack. The housekeeper is a woman named Mrs. Wilkes and she brings it to her and they stay up chatting for several minutes. June later said that Jock came to her door 10 minutes later while she was still with Mrs. Wilkes to ask how she was doing because she'd been feeling poorly because she thought she was coming down with malaria. But neither Mrs. Wilkes nor Jock had any recollection of this later at a trial. Huh. Yeah. So she says he came in, but Mrs. Wilkes and Jock were like, no, he didn't. Um, no, I didn't about Jock. So Diana was dropped off at Karen by Joss sometime around 2.15, 2.30. So she basically came in the house probably 15 to 25 minutes after they had already gotten home. Joss walked her to the door. He made some conversation also with Mrs. Wilkes for a couple minutes. And then he left in his car. And um, I think that what happened earlier in the night was when they had this celebratory meal, Jock had been like, I know that, you know, you're going to be her man for now, but like, can you just bring her home tonight at a decent hour just so I know that like she's asleep in her own bed for one last time? And because Joss was like, okay, I win. And I guess Diana was like, it wouldn't hurt for me to like go home, June staying there, and I can like gather up my stuff, you know? So that was apparently why Diana was being left at the house alone. Um, so she brings her dog in, Diana, She and she goes to June's room before retiring to bed. Um, Mrs. Wilkes also went to bed around this time. June said that Jock visited her once more around 3.30 a.m. to see if she was doing okay. 
So this is everything that's going on in the house and Karen. Meanwhile, it was 3 a.m. the same morning, early January 24th, that two African dairy workers known as Milk Boys discovered the Buick with Joss's still warm body inside shot behind the left ear. So he was found in a ditch two and a half miles away from the Karen house on his way back to Nairobi. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Who do you think did it? Well, Jacques. Obviously. But like who did yeah. he hire to do it? Is that what you're asking? No, I think it's Jacques too. Okay. So we're going to go into, obviously he was the number one suspect. He left, I, he left the room a couple of times. Yes. So he, we, we don't know exactly his movements. Okay. So these, the African dairy workers alert the local police who eventually call upon Superintendent Arthur Poppy, the head of the Nairobi Criminal Investigation Department, who orders photographs to be taken. The crime scene is compromised from the very beginning. There's like tire marks and footprints get obscured by rain and also other policemen's boot prints. The pathologist even removes Joss's body from the car before the police can get to the scene, like before they could even get photos. It's just a whole mess. It's like a fuck show of what's going on. They take the car away and start repairing it, like before they can get evidence. So it's it's essentially like none of these screw-ups were on purpose. It was just a community that was unused to murder. I was going to say, yeah, I didn't know if it was maybe like they were getting paid to manipulate the... No, I think, I honestly think it was just a screw-up. Like they just didn't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a total of two bullets found, one in Joss that had traveled from ear to ear through his brain and a second that is found near the accelerator pedal. Okay. Yeah. So he was, he was kind of shot in like a very assassiny execution style. Well, one of the bullets and then the other one was by the pedal. The other one, yeah, it looked like maybe he had ducked because he's found in the well of the car. Like he's like down like he had ducked or something. Like he's down in the driver's well. Um, At 9 a.m., a man calls Broughton to tell him that Joss has been in a car accident and has died. Within a few minutes, inspectors arrive to take a statement from Jock. So they don't reveal to anyone that he has been actually murdered. Everyone, the, the gossip around town is that he died in a car accident. Why and uh, they just, they want to get everyone's reaction okay. to this car accident to see who appears to like know something about the murder, you know? It's like typical police stuff. Like you don't reveal anything. You let the killer reveal themselves. Okay. And through like the small town gossipy nature, they knew that Joss had been having an affair with this guy's wife. So yeah. obviously he's number one suspect. And is it so on his that- property? It's, it's, I think it's, it's on a road. So it's on a public road, but they might've been abutting his property. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's only two and a half miles from his house, which is nothing when these, these places have like a hundred thousand acres, you know? So Diana's hysterical. She's just losing it. She has no idea he's murdered. She just thinks he actually died in a car accident. And she reportedly asked Jock to put a handkerchief on his body. Like he's at the morgue now. And she's like, go to his body and put this handkerchief on it. And which seems weird, but I guess maybe that was a custom of the time. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. She, and she also might just be like, people respond weirdly to grief and she's just trying to keep some part of her with him or something. Somehow, Alice and Gladys were already at the morgue. I think what happened was that since Gladys was the mayor of Nairobi and they knew she was friends with this guy, they had called her to tell her that they were bringing his body into the morgue and Alice had been at her house. Okay. 
So Gladys and Alice go to the morgue. Because Gladys is the mayor, they let her in. And they're also with um, Errol's friend, Lazard, who's another officer. And I guess Alice had been having an affair with Lazard. So I think all three of them had been together. Okay. And so they go in there and they confirm that it's Joss. And then Alice does something so insanely bizarre. This is a story of people doing bizarre things, but I think this is the weirdest thing in the entire story. She kisses his corpse on the lips, and then she lifts her skirts and, like, touches herself and wipes her vaginal fluids on Joss's face and says, now you're mine forever. Oh, my God. <laughs> like. And apparently, like, there was witnesses to this. There was obviously Gladys and Lazard, but there was also, like, the Kenyan police that were still, like, there at the morgue. And they were like, what are you doing? Don't do that. And she was just like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, he's mine now. Also, Nathaniel begged me not to use vaginal fluids. I was like, what do you want me to do? Pussy juice? juice? I think vaginal fluids is better than pussy juice. I guess pussy juice was really the only other option, though, since it's what we both said. (laughs) A a vintage de toit? (laughs) What are you going to say about that? (laughs) Uh, Okay, so so that happens. I don't know how we really segue into anything from that. Um, But Broughton, meanwhile, is not allowed in the morgue um, because he's a suspect and not with the mayor. And is not somebody who has vaginal fluids. Um, but he convinces a police officer to take the handkerchief and place it on Lord Errol's chest. It's nice that he did that after he killed him. It, it is. It is. This whole thing is so bizarre. From there, he dri- from there, he drives to rebook his ticket to Ceylon once again. And then he returns to his home where Juanita Carberry, that's June's 15-year-old stepdaughter, the daughter of John, yeah. and her governess are waiting. Juanita actually really liked Broughton because he was really kind to her when other adults seemed to ignore her or mistreat her. I guess her own father was extremely abusive and used to like whip her and stuff. So Broughton had always been somebody that like talked to her like an adult and asked her about her hobbies and her horses and stuff. So she always really liked him. Um, But she was like waiting at his house for her stepmother to come back. And she came across him at a burn pile and noticed that some gym shoes were burning, which was very bizarre. In in this area, the custom was whenever you had any sort of hand-me-downs, you gave them to your servants so that they could use them for their own families. They never threw any sort of garment or sneakers or furniture out, like everything was given to your African servants so that they could repurpose it or sell it or use it, you know? So she was like, that's really weird that he's burning sneakers. And she asked him why. And he said that they were disposing of them. And this just was like really weird because it just went against the custom of everybody in Africa. Um, So they're still not saying it's officially murder. Um, and they're holding Joss's funeral now. So they're having a funeral, but everyone who's attending the funeral still believes he was in a car accident. Okay. And the inspector's kind of like watching everybody at the funeral. So Broughton, before the funeral, calls Gladys, and he asks her to drop a note from Diana into the coffin. 
at at his funeral and she's like no that's freaking weird if you want to do it do it yourself yeah. like i'm not going to do it and i think at this point gladys is starting to try to distance herself from him i think she knows he killed him and i think that she maybe might be feeling a little guilty because i'm pretty sure she's the one who wrote the anonymous notes yeah, yeah. so all of a sudden she's trying to put a lot of distance between her and Broughton. crazy yeah. And so he shows up like completely disheveled and like kind of drunk and weird to Joss's funeral 30 minutes late. Not a good look. Not a good look, especially when you're the number one suspect. And he once again goes up to Gladys and is like, will you put this note in there? And she's like, no, why are you being so weird? Go do it yourself. So he like walks over to the grave and throws this like love note from Diana, which was like a love note that they had shared. It was a note like later the inspector like digs it up to find the note. And it's just like a note that Diana was like, I will love you forever and always. And on the other side, um, he had written like forever and always like you're mine or something. So it was really a love note from them. Yeah. And there's no evidence that Diana actually wanted him to do this. So it seems like he found this note. This was more evidence for him. And he was kind of like throwing it in there as like a fuck you, you know? Crazy. And why, yeah. Yeah, it's I'm just, like, why didn't Diana put it in the grave? Exactly. And Diana didn't come to the funeral though. She was like completely depressed. Like she was like still like not okay about this. Like, I mean, she really thought this was like the rest of her life guy and he's gone in seconds. So Inspector Poppy questions Broughton again and discovers the burn pit on his property. It's very unusual that he lit it himself, which he did with aviation fuel, um, because in this part of the world, in this time, servants did everything for them. Like if you had a house this size, you would have like 20 servants. You would have a servant for everything. So it seems crazy that he would just like make a burn pile and start destroying things without having his servants do it. Yeah. He also kept asking the inspector, like, what was going on with the postmortem. Like, so he was in a car accident, huh? And he's, like, being really weird trying to get details out about what the forensics look like and what they're showing how he died, you know? So he he's not looking very covert at this point. So finally, two days later, they announce that he's actually murdered. At this point, Broughton drives to Nairi to share the news with Diana because she's been staying with the Carberries there. Okay. And he finds no one home but Juanita. Poor lonely Juanita is just always alone by herself with all of these terrible adults behaving poorly. <laughs> So they have a pleasant conversation for two hours until June and Diana come home. And when Diana finds out it's murder, she screams at Jock and she gets basically hysterical. And she's like, I know you did it. I know you did it. And she's like, he's a murderer. She like loses her goddamn mind. And yeah, so she's losing it. Juanita is a witness to this whole thing. And she says that like she completely devolves. She's just a mess. So Poppy interviews Broughton once again, detailing the affair, his acquiescence to the affair, the stolen guns he reported, and trying to pin down his exact movements the night of the murder. So he's leaning hard on Broughton, trying to get him to crack. He also searches the grounds and he finds a half-burned golf sock in the pit that has blood on it and it is later confirmed to be human blood, but they don't have the capability in 1941 to narrow it down to Lord Errol. Oh, no. So, yeah, so they know it's not like pig blood or something like that. They know it's human blood, but they don't have any DNA, like, they can't do anything in 1941. So they that probably would have put him away. In another era, you know? 
Poppy also learns of the target shooting that took place back in November at Jack Soames' ranch and digs up the spent bullets to compare to bullets used in the murder. Bizarrely, under all of this pressure, Broughton and Diana go on a hunting safari less than three weeks after the murder. So they go for eight days and they're accompanied by Hugh Dickinson, which is, you know, of course, Diana's friend and confidant. And basically, Broughton was like, this is getting crazy. You're so sad. Everything's terrible. Let's go away on a hunting safari. And she's like, I'm not going anywhere alone with you. And she demanded that Hugh Dickinson come, which is smart. And by all accounts, this is hell for Diana. And only Dickinson saves it. I mean, she's lost the love of her life. She's not convinced that her husband didn't do it. And now she's like alone in the wild with him. It's important to note that this is a really, what they described as energetic safari, meaning that it's like a ton of exercise. Lord Broughton shot a huge double-barreled rifle weighing 11 pounds, and he also helped haul the carcass of a 450-pound lion. And also, Lord Broughton one day walked for seven miles in the heat of the day while hunting buffalo. This is important because later on at the trial, they say that he is too infirm to walk two and a half miles, like because he would have had to walk back from the murder scene, you know? And so while he's on the safari, just like three weeks after the murder, he's able to do all of these things. So finally on March 10th, 1941, Poppy arrested Jock at the Karen house. When he was arrested, Broughton said, do you mind if I have a whiskey? And Poppy gave him his very own hip flask. By 7 o'clock that night, Broughton was in a cell at the Nairobi police station and his lawyer was on his way to see him. He would remain there for three months before the trial began. While it is unknown whether Diane believed her husband was guilty of murdering the love of her life, she was basically, like, straight fucked now. Like, she had no love of her life who was taking her away anymore. She had no money of her own. All of the connections that she had in Kenya other than her friend June were either her husband's or her lover's. So she doesn't really have much of a choice but to stand by her man at this point. She's also kind of like now that the news of everything happening in the murder, she's kind of like painted as a scarlet woman, you know, like none of this would have happened if they hadn't had an affair. So she decides to stand by Jock during the trial and she even flies to South Africa to retain the best defense attorney the country has to offer. It's this guy named Harry Morris um, who demands a fee of 5,000 pounds, which you might have remembered is about a quarter million pounds for like a one-time fee for representing him. Wow. Which is crazy. And so she agrees because they have no other choice. So the trial opens on May 26th of 1941. And as you can imagine, it was quite the spectacle. (laughs) Quite. So Diana becomes this fashion icon. She's wearing designer outfits and dripping with diamonds and jewels. Like she is not being low key at this thing. So she's getting photographed. This is kind of an international sensation. Like there's newspapers from England there. And there's even um, a reporter who comes from Chicago to cover this, which is crazy because we are right in the middle of World War II. And I think that why this was such an interesting case was that most people in the world were either like being bombed or, you know, they were refugees or they were going without butter rations and they had no electricity or, you know, they couldn't wear nylons because they had to go to the war effort. And these people are just running around with all of this money, like acting like complete assholes. And so, yeah, I think that this became such a big sensation because it's like, how are people living like this while there's a war on? This is nuts. They're in their little Africa bubble. They're in their bubble and they are just doing themselves and each other. 
<laughs> she's fascinating to the public and the press, but she's kind of also reviled. She's, like I said, this scarlet woman, and she is someone who has sullied the reputation of Brits in the colonies. So, like, even worse than being, like, this scarlet woman is the fact that because of this case, all of the, like, sex stuff and the games and all of the bad behavior of these wealthy aristocratic white people is coming to light and it's like even worse given you know the time frame yeah so like she's like considered like you know the one person who gets in trouble and then you all get in trouble kind of so harry morris is like this og white johnny cocker and he's got like that panache and that intelligence he's smart he's showy he's clever he was also considered a ballistics expert which came in handy um because the only hard evidence that the prosecution had was the spent bullets found on the scene and at the Soames's ranch While the prosecution was relying on these ballistics and also motive, opportunity, and some circumstantial evidence, the defense had three parts. One is that Jock Broughton is physically unable to do it. They claimed he was too infirm to shoot, walk two and a half miles in the pitch black, and potentially shimmy down a drain pipe, which was an argument um, because June said that he came to her door twice, but she didn't hear him leave Oh, like she said that she would have heard him walk by her room if he was just passing by and she didn't hear him. So they, the defense, sorry, the prosecution was like, well, maybe he shimmied down a drain pipe. And they're like, no, he couldn't do that. He's like an old guy with a bum foot. So that was like a huge point that they were making. He also pulled like a super Harvey Weinstein. Remember Harvey Weinstein had like the walker and they made him yes. look like so yeah, old. Yeah, he did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He did that. Like he was limping and he's like his hand that had the arthritis like was shaking when he was like at the table. They were like really playing up that he was like this old man who was handicapped and could not have possibly done this. Um, the second thing that I kind of alluded to in the first one is June Carberry's testimony. So at 2.10, Broughton allegedly said goodnight. She was up with Diana until at least 2.40. And she would have noticed or heard Broughton leaving. And then she said that he like knocked on her door again at 3.30. So between all of that, there's no time for him to either travel five miles round trip or even come back in if he'd like hitched a ride in the car. Like there's one theory that he like hid in the back seat because Joss came in to say goodnight and like talk to Mrs. Wilkes. We could have gotten into the back seat and hid potentially. But in any of the circumstances, it just seemed like the timing was too tight if he was really at June Carberry's door at 210 and 330. So was June defending him? So she was supposed to be a witness for the prosecution, but when she gave her testimony, she seemed like she was defending Yeah, him. that's what it sounds like. Okay, cool. Which is really wild. And I, I think also – It's interesting. I wonder if she also kind of like Gladys felt guilty for her part in the affair. Like she was really helping them have the affair and that's what pushed Broughton to murder. So I wonder if she was like giving him an alibi because she felt bad. Yeah. So it's really interesting. These are a bunch of very selfish people with weird hangups here. Mm Mm-hmm. And then of course the ballistics, which was really, really where um, this guy Harry shone. Um, the two points that the prosecution was making regarding the ballistics were, number one, that the bullets found at the crime scene and the bullets found at Soames's ranch were shot from the same gun. And two, that that gun was the Colt 32 that Broughton had reported missing, which was obviously a ruse. 
So Morris defeated each of these arguments. On the first proposition that the bullets had come from the same gun, the Crown's case was about similar markings left on the bullets as they traveled through the barrel. Morris didn't deny that they had similarities, but he spent hours with photographs pointing out every minute difference. So he basically completely confused the jury and was like, well, he said, they said that there's like this marking, this marking, this marking. I'm going to spend the next two hours showing you all the ways they're different. Crazy. So yeah. So he just pointed out like every small difference. And he was like, so do you really think they're alike now after I just spent two hours showing you how they're not alike? Yeah. Um, and then the second one was even easier for him. The Crown had argued that all of the bullets had been shot from a revolver where the barrel had five grooves that twisted clockwise. Um, And they had contended that it was the Colt that had been stolen, in quotation marks. But all Colt Colt revolvers have six grooves and twist counterclockwise. So he proved it couldn't possibly be a Colt that was used, basically tearing apart the only real evidence that the Crown had. And so then they're like, well, maybe he had another gun. And it didn't matter because they had already kind of screwed themselves, you know? He then... Put Broughton himself on the stand, which was a risk, but it paid off. He seemed calm, gentlemanly, and resigned to Joss and Diana being together. In no way did he come across as like an unhinged, jealous spouse, which is what the prosecution, the Crown, was trying to say. Um, He was just like, seemed like a kindly old gentleman, basically. Um, One line of questioning that made him look particularly sympathetic was the following. Um, Harrigan, the prosecutor, asked, what was your reaction to the news of Errol's death? I was dumbfounded. Wasn't this a very satisfactory solution to your domestic troubles? No, not at all. No solution. What do you mean by no solution? I do not think the average man would have relished resuming married life with one who had been madly in love with another man and was still. So like, he sounds like so like dejected and like sad defeated you know and I think that like made people in the jury go aww you know also one effed up like detail is that the jury foreman was Jock's barber what yeah I don't know how that went allowed it's a complete conflict of interest I have no idea how that was possible why they let that stand but I, I found that out while I was reading and I was like come on So Morris, the defense attorney, felt so confident with the case that he made that following his closing arguments, he shook hands with each member of the jury and he immediately got on a flight back to South Africa without waiting for the verdict. Like, that is a ball sack. Like, that is swinging balls to be like, I did such a great job that I don't even need to wait for it. I'm done. Bye. Wow. Good luck. Or he just got his money, so he's like, I don't care, win or lose, I get I get all this money, so bye. Court cases are so crazy. It's so nuts. So after three hours and 25 minutes of deliberation, the jury acquitted Lord Jock Delves Broughton with the foreman, his barber, even giving him a thumbs up as they filed back into the courtroom. So he's innocent. That's what they're deeming him, which is nuts. So with that wow. acquittal, isn't that crazy? After all of that, they're just like, I guess he didn't do it. That old man. That old sweet man couldn't have physically done it. So with that acquittal, the trial was concluded and the case was considered unsolved and a mystery for decades. Dun, dun, dun. 
But lucky for you, I have some fascinating theories and new evidence that shine light on who I and most of the world believe is the real killer. Okay, you so you really don't think it's him? Maybe we don't think it's him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I still think it's him, but I'm going to have to entertain some other ideas. So let's run down some intriguing theories about who could have otherwise killed Joss. Number one, almost every other husband in Nairobi. <laughs> You know, he's a playboy, he's rude, you know, he had been with so many other women. Um, but at the time of his death, there's no evidence he was seeing anybody else other than Diana. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been very weird timing for another guy to get. And near that other dude's property, like, I don't buy it. Yeah, exactly. Number two, Gladys Delamere, the mayor. Uh, why people think that this could be possible is that she had once had an affair with Joss. She was still in love with him. She obviously wrote the letters. But there's no evidence, no real motive. She has an alibi, and she was very convinced of Jock's guilt. Like, if she had actually done it, I think she would have felt bad about him taking the rap, yeah. you know? Third is Diana herself. One of the alternate theories proposed by Morris, the defense attorney, was that Joss had refused to marry her, that that night that they were together after the celebratory dinner, they had had some sort of fight and that he didn't want to marry her after all because um, June had told her that uh, Broughton wasn't going to give her any money. So now she's broke and he doesn't want to be with a broke woman. And so that she and June teamed up to kill him in vengeance. I don't buy that. No, that's so far-fetched. Okay, now this one's really far-fetched. Then there was a suggestion that it was either MI6, that he was assassinated by an MI6 special ops because he was a fascist sympathizer in possession of a certain unspecified information (laughs) critical to the war effort. And then the other people on the other side thought Germans did it. Like, come on. Yeah, exactly. Come on. They know. It's like, it's the deep state. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. So the most popular theory, other than Lord Broughton, was that the killer was Alice DeJonzi. So I could see that for sure. Yeah. Like, and this one, this one makes a lot of sense. In 2010, a businessman whose mother had been friends with Alice compiled years worth of research into a book called The Temptress, The Scandalous Life of Alice, Countess de Janzi, to declare definitively that Alice had been Errol's murderer. So it seems very obvious she was clearly still had a thing for him. There was a lot of jealousy about him moving on, the weird vagina thing on his face and saying like now we're together forever um and obviously she'd already shot a lover so this is not out of her behavior so this seems like it would be in character for her so some of his evidence was that she was terribly concerned about Broughton being ruled guilty and extremely anxious for someone who hadn't known him very well she apparently visited the prison several times to see him and bring him things she also was very weird about the trial she would go every day and take notes and she was like telling everyone she knew that she just knew he was innocent and she prayed for his release. Oh, she, I would I would think that she would want him to be guilty because then it would clear they her. S- they say that I think that she wasn't she was a passionate person but maybe not a terrible person and I think that what they contend is that if he had been found guilty, she would have confessed and said I did it so that an innocent man didn't hang because there might have been a death penalty case. Okay. 
So that's what their contention is, that she was nervous about having to confess if he was, in fact, found guilty. Um, And then apparently also the attorney general, who's the prosecutor, ignored two anonymous letters that stated the murderer was a discarded mistress because it didn't fit what their theory was. So they just ignored those letters. Um, But most importantly... Um, she did end up committing suicide, which I'm going to get into in a second. But when she did commit suicide, she reportedly left letters confessing to the crime. Eight months after Joss's death, Alice told several friends over lunch that the first of her two deep wishes had come true, and she wondered when the second was going to. Twelve days after this conversation, she collected flowers from her garden and placed them in vases all around her bed and put the petals on her bed. She then put on her best nightgown, took a dose of Nembitol, which is a sedative, and shot herself through the heart. Holy and shit. And actually succeeded. Yeah. She she killed herself. Yeah, but that's like um, alert. dramatic. I thought you were just going to say she took some pills. She no, herself- she took the pills and shot herself in the heart. She had um, apparently tried to commit suicide several times before by taking pills, and she'd always been revived. So I think this is why she took the gun this time. Like, she was like, I mean business. Poor thing. So alerted by her servants, her doctor found five letters at the scene. One to her current lover, Dickie Pembroke, who had – he had been in Kenya, but then he had been um, restationed to Cairo. Okay. So one letter to him – two to her daughters, one general suicide note, and one to the police. No one knows where the one to the police is now, and the contents were never officially released. So Spicer, the author of the book, posits because the coroner was so shocked at their implication that he handed it over to the attorney general, who is the same one who tried Broughton at court, and he may have decided not to reopen the case as they had already kind of closed it and the killer, Alice, was already dead, so there was no reason. Okay. So that's what he contends. He doesn't know this. The doctor on scene allegedly read the letter and showed it to his wife and claimed that it was a full confession to Lord Errol's murder. Spicer contends that her alibi, her lover Dickie Pembroke, he had slept through her departure and returned the night of the murder, or he might have just lied for her. Mm-hmm. A neighbor of Alice's later found a thirty-two revolver under some rocks on the border between their properties. And is that what was used? Yes, it was a thirty-two revolver. So there's like a lot of how this could potentially be the killer. The only question Spicer had was why Alice would kill her beloved Joss instead of her rival Diana. And Alice's housekeeper told authorities that Alice was obsessed with the occult and completing her second wish was to kill herself and be reunited with Joss in the afterlife forever. Psycho. Psycho. So James Fox, who wrote the primary text I used for this, White Mischief, found this assertion largely illogical and based on hearsay and gossip. It's also true that Alice was an incredibly stunning previous beauty and seductress, and she had just gone through a month earlier a full hysterectomy after having uterine cancer. So she was not in a good mental state. um, And Two days before the suicide, she had had her 42nd birthday. So she had written letters about how much it sucks to age, how shitty she felt, how she was sick of this cancer, and then they removed her uterus um, in the hysterectomy, which does cause you to go into a premature menopause. So her hormones are all over the place. She's depressed also because her lover had been restationed in Cairo. And she has a history of depression in general. So I I think that it's 
well, this is a very intriguing and and quite fascinating approach to who killed Joss. Ultimately, it feels like it's not surprising that she killed herself and it might not have had anything to do with Joss, you know? Yeah, or she killed him. Or she killed him. (laughs) That's like the ultimate love murder. Yes. Lastly, though, this is why I think Lord Broughton did it with new evidence. I I still think he did it. I think Alice is like a better story, but I still think this dude did it. Um, After he was acquitted, Lord Broughton and Diana were considered social pariahs. They were kicked out of the exclusive Mutaiga Club, and they were uninvited from all gatherings. And the only person who took pity on them, and really just Diana, was an exceptionally wealthy and reclusive man named Gilbert Colville. Gilbert had been close friends with Joss and wanted to protect Diana from the media attention and the scorn she was receiving – as well as perhaps protect her from her husband. Yeah. Um, Lord and Lady Broughton, that's, you know, Diane and Jock, embarked on trips to Ceylon and India directly after the trial to give the local set time to move past the crime. But Diana describes this trip as absolute hell. She was no longer remotely in love with her husband, obviously. And despite publicly standing by him during the trial, she still suspected him of murdering her love, you know? So can you imagine, like, you're in love with somebody and now you have to go on a vacation with their killer? After they returned to Kenya, she convinced Jock to rent out Errol's prior home, the Jin Palace, the one he had lived with, with Molly. Yep. Other, otherwise known as a Syrian, because anything that was Joss's, I wanted to be near, is what she said about it. Oh. So... Of course, this has to make, you know, Jock feel weird. Yeah. She's making him rent this house that was the home of her lover yeah. so she can be near him. Upon her return, she deepened her friendship with Gilbert, perhaps because of his connection to Joss, but more likely because he was a multimillionaire and widely considered the richest man in Kenya. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) He was very much a trade-up from Broughton, though he's only five years younger, so he's still much older than Diana. But he didn't Um, kill her But he didn't kill her lover, and he was, like, by all accounts, even though he was kind of odd, he was a really good guy. So Broughton is getting increasingly annoyed at their growing friendship, especially when Diana invited Gilbert to stay with them at the Gin Palace for, like, an extended period of time. And she was also starting to become, like, outright hostile towards Broughton. She is desperately trying to legally end the marriage. She wants him to just leave her alone. She even says to his face in front of a lawyer that she knows that he's the actual killer. Wow. So she's just like, I know you did it. I don't want to be around you anymore. Legally, just let me go. Like, let's – you give me some money and let's make this work because I don't want to be around you anymore. So he's still trying to, like, make things work with her. Um, but it just gets to a situation where he just has to leave because she just doesn't want to be around him. So in partial defeat, he leaves for England. Later on in interviews, Diana hints that after he left, he attempted to blackmail her, but evidence wasn't discovered until after her death in 1987. In 1993, the secretary to the attorney general in Nairobi, the same man who had tried Broughton, the prosecutor, published the original letter sent to Diana and it became the cornerstone of the 1993 documentary, Alcohol, Altitude, and Adultery. So this... I'm going to read the letter to you. I'm going to read it in its entirety. And if we decide to like edit some out, we will later because the the letter is, he is so ugly and so blackmaily and so mean towards Diana. It's crazy. So he writes this in October of 1942. 
Diana, I am determined to punish you for ruining my life in the way you have done. Up to the time we left England, universally popular, respected, millions of friends and welcome everywhere, I worshipped the ground you stood on and got divorced in order to marry you. On board the boat, you became a stranger to me and a completely different human being. You started a fuck with Tony Mordaunt under my eyes, and I discovered the copy of a letter you wrote to your Italian, the most violent love letter written when living with me on Doddington writing paper. So Doddington was his previous estate. Mm -hmm. This was the first time I knew you had double-crossed me. On the boat, you were regretting the whole time that you had not stayed in England and married Rory Morrow Farrell. We got to South Africa, where at the Cape Town, you were bloody to me most of the time. When being thoroughly fed up, I said I should like to return to England in front of the Bayless family. You said, I shall stay in South Africa. Why don't you return to England? Charming for me. You made such a farce of our marriage that the registrar almost refused to marry you. If I had not adored you, I should not have been fool enough to marry you, but I worshipped you. We came up to Kenya... For about six weeks, I was happy. You then started double-crossing me with Errol. Do you think any woman has ever treated any man as badly as you did me? Letting him be divorced from a wife he has lived with not unhappily for 25 years and then telling him she was leaving him two months after she had married him because she let herself fall in love? Millions of people fall in love, but they have feelings of decency and do not behave like you did. If you had returned to England, you would have, of course, have gotten over it. Errol was murdered. You say yourself it never even occurred to you to connect it with me till the police put it in your head. You then in your evidence did all in your power to get me hung. Later you say yourself you were convinced I had nothing to do with it. So this is like the author says that that was so patently not true as she was the one who went to South Africa to get the really good defense attorney. And showed up to all the cases and everything. And showed up to all the cases and and didn't testify and always supported him in every way. The letter goes on. After the verdict, you were charming to me and you were perfectly happy in Ceylon and India, which is also not true. We came back and were quite happy till we went on safari with Gilbert Colville. Since that moment, everything has gone wrong. You knew he was the richest settler in Kenya, could be useful to you, was easy money and laid yourself out to ensnare him, quite regardless of how you knew how unhappy and miserable it made me. You never said you did not want me to go on safari and I went. During the safari, you made it clear you hated me and never took the slightest notice of me and to rub it in, made the most frightful fuss of Gilbert Colville all the time. I began to hate you for this, but I took it all lying down without reproaching you. We have never been anything else but unhappy since we went there on March 1st. I never objected to you to having people to stay, but when we had Rose, you always dinned into me how you were still in love with Errol. This in your fervent friendship with Colville and your obvious dislike of being ever alone with me made me depressed, unhappy, and hating the place, people, country, everything connected with it. I thought things were going to be better when you had Hugh Strickland to stay, liked him, and enjoyed having him. Like the poor fool I was, I had no idea what was happening or why you put him in a room with no lock on the door opening straight out into your rooms till Chappie Bayless told me that he was seen kissing you in your bedroom at the Stanley by a highly amused crowd from the Taurus Hotel. Even then, thinking you had always told me the truth about your cold temperament, I didn't suspect what was going on till you were so anxious to get me off to bed one night with a sleeping drought. I watched through the window of your bathroom and saw you actually go and fetch him and return to your bedroom with him and then listen to him fucking you through the gauze in your bedroom window, not more than three yards away. By the way, the whole bed rocked. You evidently enjoyed it like you used to with me. So it's, it talks about how like the next two nights he watched them do it and stuff like that. Whoa. The next night I asked for a sleeping draw and went to bed early and watched and saw you walk into your bedroom and get into your bed and you followed and got into bed with him. I then took action. So what is going on at this point is that he's like still forgiving her, but he's writing all this down and noting it and not confronting her. 
And he says, what maddened him, he said, was you telling me sex was bad for you and hurt you when I wanted to have you and going to bed night after night with a vigorous man who certainly made your inside so bad that you had to have another operation. It's like, I don't know what that is. And then when Diana moved Gilbert into the gin palace, I noticed you changed his room to the one with a clear run to your bedroom. And do you really expect me to believe he was never in it? What still astonished me is that you would go to a bed with a man you don't particularly care for. You're certainly, as you say, devoted to Colville and would go to bed with him whenever he wanted. So he wrote, there's only one possible course left to me. And I left. You never even said goodbye to me. He accuses her of ruining him financially. The trial cost me over 5,000 pounds and adds pathetically, you have been consistently selfish in every way and I have given in to you because you made yourself so absolutely bloody when I did not. You have frequently made me lose my temper with you, but I've always said I was sorry. He then moves to the blackmail and here he shows his true wickedness. He tries to frame Diana for a crime she didn't commit. And so basically what happens is that we find out later from Hugh Dickinson that there was insurance fraud on those occasions with the pearls and the paintings and that he needed money and he talked Hugh Dickinson as her friend into helping him basically steal but not steal those things. Okay. And so it's not very clear whether Diana actually knew everything about this operation. Like, yes, it's her very good friend and her boyfriend. So there's a huge possibility that she did know and she was slightly in on it, but there's no evidence that she participated in it even remotely. So at this point, he says um, that he had brought in, had Dickinson put the pearls in a um, deposit box that was under Diana's name. So he's going to set her up for this, for this insurance fraud. He's basically going to say they're in a box with her name. She stole them. She knew all about this insurance Whoa. fraud. Yep. You can imagine how I am nearly dead with depression by now, and all of my thoughts have been centered on how I can really punish you for what you have done to me. You have double-crossed me so many times that I'm going to double-cross you properly if I find my suspicions justified. I have always been suspicious as to what you had inside the deed box you gave me to give George Green, his solicitor, to keep for you. So he's like trying to set it up like like she gave him this box. Diana could already see from this sentence a wicked distortion of the real events, how he intended to frame her. If she didn't start for England in 10 days, he wrote, he would have the box sent to Scotland Yard. You will be then sent home for trial. If you are only an accessory, it would be exactly the same thing and make no difference. The penalty for this offense is 14 years hard labor. You are now nearly 29, and by the time you were taken home for trial and sentenced, it might take nine months, and this would keep you from double-crossing me and popping into bed with any strange man until you are 44, and prison is very aging, and I don't think you would find men so easy then. Whoa. I'm wondering how – isn't this brutal? Yeah, it's gross. It's just – It's just dripping with grossness. I'm wondering how your Tygy darling, her nickname for Colville, would react to your confession. At any rate, he will have died of old age before you get out of jail. I could moreover divorce you for having committed a criminal offense. However many accomplices you may have had would be equally involved if my suspicions are justified. 
You have changed me into a fiend thirsting for vengeance. I think of nothing else day and night. I never sleep for thinking of it. I am determined to see you in the dock where I was last year because of your love affair with Joss Errol. I get bloodier minded every day. As they say, hate and love are very akin. And I still love you. I hate you sometimes like you do me, but I miss you every hour of the day and night and I want you back and I'm determined that that swine Gilbert Colville who is the cause of all this shall not have you. When you told me that you and he were going to share the Jin Palace, which of course means that he would have to keep you, I thought, how could I punish you both? And this is how I'm going to do it. Broughton's conditions for lifting the blackmail were that Diana should come back and live a normal life with him, offering, offering her, in effect, a miserable form of human bondage. <clears throat> I would take a house, I think, just outside of London, and we should both have to do jobs of work like everyone else in England. We shall both have lots of friends, and I would never have anyone in the house you didn't like, and you would do the same, but I won't have you getting out of bed with other men. Once again in England, among your friends, you would soon forget and be happy. But if you do show signs of hatred or annoy me when you return, I shall act at once. I am not double-crossing you nearly as badly as you have me. It is, moreover, quite useless coming back to me as a stranger or knowing that you hate me, but as my wife. So he's essentially, like, trying to blackmail her into being his wife again? Yep. Dude, not the way to go about it. No, not So cute. Diane, oh, it's just gross. Yeah, not cute. Ugh. Yeah. So anyways, this is why, like, what James Fox says in White Mischief, and I tend to agree with him, is that after reading that note, which came out way after he wrote the book, which so he put it in an afterword, is that with this letter, it just confirms to him that he really does think that Jock did it. But it wasn't so much out of, like, jealousy of Joss. It was like he did it to punish Diana. This is a very punishing thing. He took away the love of her life to punish her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he's still he's trying like to do a, it after. And he's still trying to punish her afterwards. So Diana is a smart cookie and a survivor, and she does exactly the opposite of what he thinks she's going to do. She goes straight to the attorney general with Hugh Dickinson and a lawyer, and she hands over the letter. And Hugh Dickinson admits his part in the crimes and says that he – like that Diana had absolutely nothing to do with it. And because of his testimony, they basically like – waive his crimes they're like fine Hugh Dickinson you don't you know you've told us you've come forward so like you're pardoned yeah well and didn't and, um Jacques ask him to do it yes he was the mastermind yeah, so it's like um yeah so he is the guy so they want to catch him and also I think the attorney general in Nairobi still like fucking hated him yeah um because also another piece of information that came out way later was the attorney general's son after he died said that apparently Jock came into the um he came into his office after the trial and was like trying to talk to Harrigan, the prosecutor, about like how he screwed up the case. And the guy was like, I don't want to talk to you about this. And he's like, oh, bad luck, old boy. You know I did it and I know I did it, but you couldn't prove it. So like this attorney general fucking hates him. And so he wants to nail him for this like blackmail and insurance fraud. So he wires all of the information and Hugh Dickinson's confession to Scotland Yard. And it gets there before his boat lands. So it gets there like ahead. Like he wrote this letter like when he was leaving Kenya. And by the time he gets to England, Scotland Yard is like ready to question him. Whoa. 
So he bones himself in this situation. So he gets back, and two days after his return, when he's supposed to be meeting with Scotland Yard, he goes. So this is um, December 5th, 1942, um, with possible charges being alleged against him once more, he commits suicide by morphine overdose at the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool. Man, another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust. And this is, isn't this crazy? It's two years and one month to the day after he got married. Wow. <laughs> Diana. All of this happened. All of this happened from marriage to suicide. And the, you know, murder trial in between happened in two years. That is crazy. Isn't that crazy? So there were several other like comments and testimonies that only came to light after many of our principal characters were dead, which is like the thing I told you about what he said to the attorney general. And then even more damning is um, what Juanita Carberry, the 15-year-old, later told James Fox for the book. Um, And then she also talked to the documentary. She openly admitted that Broughton confessed to her that day he drove out to Nyeri. In 1971, she told James Fox, there is no mystery. He did it. He told me himself the following day. He was desperate. They'd been laughing at him. He wanted to unburden himself, poor man. He came up late in the afternoon to Nyeri. Everyone had gone to Nanyuki and I was the only person there. I think that finding nobody there almost broke him. We walked down to the stables and I showed him my horse. He told me then that he had shot Errol. He told me not to be frightened when the police came. And he told me about the gun, which he said he had thrown in the Thika Falls. In the 1993 documentary, she says very matter-of-factly, like Nathaniel and I had to pause and rewind because she's so matter-of-fact. When he told me that he had done it, I was in no way shocked because in the kind of circle I'd grown up in, in addition to living in Africa, which is comparatively cheap, I didn't think that knocking somebody off was all that horrendous. Not really. (laughs) What? Also, I don't know what Africa being cheap has to do with killing people. Um, Then she continues, later when I realized what had happened and the motives, you know, jealousy and the way she was playing around with other men in front of him and all that, I suppose I felt sorry for him and felt he was somehow justified in what he had done. What? So she never told anybody until later about this conversation because she felt sorry for him. Wow. Yeah. Furthermore, her stepmother, June, later recanted her testimony rescinding his alibi. She admitted that her evidence had been false. She told Walter Harrigan, the attorney general, that she had heard Broughton walking past her door on the night of the murder and that she had made up his alibi because she didn't feel like she could let the old boy hang. Whoa. Isn't that illegal? Can there was a jail for that? I think by the time – so he the, – the attorney general was really upset about this case, obviously. And he found her in – uh, South Africa later like and she was old at this point yeah. and he like went to her and he was like tell me the actual truth like none of this matters I'm not gonna get you in trouble you know you're like an older woman now she was like practically elderly and she's like oh yeah you know I lied I lied whoa and he was like oh like he was so frustrated there was also the case of they didn't really bring this up at the trial but in the evidence in the back seat of the car there was these white scuff marks and they could have been um, matching the soles of the shoes that were burning in the burn pile. So I think that he, when Joss came in with Diana, I think he snuck out, got into the back of the car with the gun. And I don't know what kind of gun he used. Um, I know, but can you and imagine then, someone in the back of the car shooting downward? Like if he came up. Yeah. Also, he was shot on 
the left side, but you have to remember on the UK, they drive on the other side. Yep. So if he's in the opposite of the back, he could be like this, you know? And it looks like one of the first bullets went down and the second one hit him. And then it looks like he must have drove into the ditch after he was killed. So I don't know. That's my theory. Okay. And you're sticking to it. I don't really know. I think that this is the one. But also I I have to say that I read White Mischief and I watched the movie. I did not read the entirety of the other book, which said that Alice DeJanzi did it. So maybe if I had read that book and used it as my primary source, I would be like, Alice DeJanzi did it. (laughs) Okay. So this, I think, sums up the murder. It's, in my opinion, I think Lord Broughton did it, but it's totally possible that maybe it was Alice. Um, But what's most interesting is what happened to Diana afterwards. Only a month after Broughton's suicide, she married Gilbert, of course. He bought her the gin palace, gave her his family jewels and more. He allowed her to buy anything she wished for, including like a ton of expensive racehorses and gifted her a large part of his estate on their wedding day. Like she didn't have to wait for divorce or death. Like she got a big part of his estate on the day they were married. So girlfriend has got it going on. Um, He was a funding member of every social club in Kenya. And again, the richest guy in Kenya. So society was kind of forced to accept Diana once more. Yeah. Because he was like, you have to accept my wife. By the early 1950s, she was the most stylish and sought after woman in Nairobi. And everyone had basically just forgotten the scandal. They never really forgot it, but they just like moved past it. And the scandal became kind of part of her allure, actually. Um, and it seems as though Diana and Gilbert had a lot of mutual affection. They really enjoyed each other. They seemed like really actually just best friends, um, but they were never truly in love. And they lived with this – they always had separate bedrooms, kind of like her situation yeah. with Broughton. Um, they lived with this arrangement until Diana met and began an affair with the first man she had ever loved other than Errol, Tom Delamere. And if Delamere sounds familiar to you, it's because the Delamere's are basically the Kennedys of this, like the white settler Kenya Kennedys. And it was Gladys's son. What? So, yeah, if Gladys, ironically, if Gladys, the mayor, had lived to 1955, she had um, passed away in 1943, she would have become Diana's mother-in-law. Whoa. Yeah. So... Gilbert and Tom were actually pretty good friends and often traveled and spent time together and they all hung out with Diana. And Gilbert really loved Diana so much. He just wanted her to be happy. So he agreed to an amicable divorce and he even promised that Diana would still inherit his vast estate when he passed. Wow. Yep. And Tom divorced his wife and the two were married shortly thereafter. Um, It was said that Gilbert actually moved into the Delamere Ranch and live the rest of his life there. Obviously, there was no longer any sort of hanky-panky or romantic relationship between Diana and Gilbert, but she was like his best friend, and she cared for him until he passed. And when he did die, Diana inherited everything from him. The most conservative of estimates of the proceeds of Diana's sale of Gilbert's property was 2.5 million pounds, which is roughly 53 million pounds in today's money. So she just got that. Meanwhile, had just transitioned her husband into 
her next life with her new husband, who was also wildly rich. Like, she's got some moves, She leveled up, for sure. (laughs) She leveled up, and every husband got, like, richer and richer. Um, So the Delamere's were among the few white settlers who survived and prospered through Kenyan independence in 1963, and Diana even seemed to have a special bond with the president, Jomo Kenyatta. James Fox witnessed the two of them together at the Uhuru Cup where Delamere racehorses were racing and said of them, the two great survivors smiled conspiratorially together. And I remember thinking that once again, Diana had managed to charm a rich and powerful man. So she's like an old lady at this point and she's still like working it with like the new powers that be, which is the first president after independence, um, Kenyatta. Diana remained with Tom Delamere until his death in 1979 when she inherited an undisclosed portion of his estate. By her 70s, she was a multimillionaire many times over, all inherited from her four husbands throughout a truly fascinating life. Uh, She had vast power in Kenya and had paid off several of like the locals and the people in this scene. Um, to stay hushed about the murder in later years, which is why so much only came out after her death in 1987. Um, She said about Joss to the guy who wrote this book, um, I always felt that it was because of me that he was killed. Although he probably would have been killed anyway. He was that sort of man. (laughs) Which I think is such a funny thing to say. Okay, girl. Whatever makes you feel better. Whatever makes you sleep at night. Yeah, I think it was because of you. Yeah, yeah I think it was your husband who killed We're him. safe to say. Oh, my God. So I think that, you know, she is this central character in this drama. But she's a smart, tough survivor who I believe kind of became cynical after losing the love of her life. And what I think is really interesting is that both her and Joss had built their reputations on being kind of like fortune hunters. And the one time they fell truly madly in love with, like, another penniless person, it was ripped away from them. Because yep. it was like, no wonder like she just real and everyone sensed that was, and that's why Jacques had a meltdown. Yeah, it was real, real. And so then after that, I think she just was like, fuck it. If I can't have the love of my life, let's just go for security and people who treat me with respect. Yeah. And she got it, man. She got it. So that's a really tragic – love story, but I have, for the end, some fun Wikipedia facts about the movie. (laughs) I feel like this should be a new section if there's a really random movie. So this movie came out in 1987 called White Mischief. It was unbelievably hard to find. Um, My husband had to VPN it to say we were like in England to be able to stream it. Oh my God. Yeah. And then like the first few times he like tried to download it, he was like only getting like the Russian and German versions. <laughs> but eventually we saw it and it's a ridiculous movie. And um, the guy who plays Joss is Tywin Lannister. Stop. Uh-huh. His name is Charles Dance. So Tywin Lannister, a young Tywin Lannister plays Joss, which he was actually really great. And then a woman named Greta Scacchi, who is stunning. She's just a gorgeous woman. Yeah, she looks like um, Michelle Pfeiffer crossed with uh, – what's what's her name from uh, the Manson murders? Oh, Sharon Tate. 
Yes, yes. She looks like the actress is so beautiful. She looks like Sharon Tate plus like Michelle Pfeiffer. And so she plays Diana. Um, and she was married for four years to Vincent D'Onofrio, who is he was like law and order criminal intent. And when I was little, he was best known to me from being men in black, like the bug guy, the alien. Oh my God. Yeah. Anyways, they have a daughter named Layla who looks exactly like the mom and um, the mom who played Diana. And she is a 28-year-old who is dating 59-year-old Sean Penn. Whoa. Yeah. So she's been with Sean Penn for two years and their age difference is 31 years. So that's even more than the 28 years between Diana and Jock. Whoa. Yep. And then little side note, Gladys Delamere was played by Susan Fleetwood, who's the sister of Mick Fleetwood, the drummer of Fleetwood Mac. Okay. And the last one's the weirdest. So this is the last detail. This is so random. I was like watching the movie and going down a Wikipedia hole. Um, but the last one is that Sarah Miles, who plays Alice DeJohnsey, everyone's favorite Cray, she stated, and it's in her Wikipedia, in 2007, that she has been drinking her own urine for 30 years for health reasons. Excuse me? I just had to end on that one. It's in her Wikipedia. I'm like, that's all the information? It's one sentence. That has to like, be a joke. That <laughs> right? has to be a joke. Who would do that, though? <laughs> Somebody mad at her? Also, she's like a 79-year-old woman. I feel like that has like a tie-in with her vaginal fluid being rubbed on. There's, I know. I was like, she's so much like Alice. Maybe she was just really in character because that feels like something Alice would yeah. do. She's, just, she's been method for years. <laughs> okay. This has been a very interesting and sexy and weird case. Oh, it was, it's good. It, covered, it was good. It I hope you enjoyed it. All the bases. <laughs> this was like, I think, a love murder home run. We got like the weird sex. We got the adultery. We got the murder. We got attempted murder, you know? I do feel like we need to, you know, this sexy vibe I think needs to be revisited at least once a month. Yes, for sure. I, I'm going to try to find more cases that have more like sex parties cool. and sex dungeons. I think people and like that. Just more sexy sex, sex, sex. So when you're heading to your next key swapping party... Just think about this story. And always remember, you're just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>